We acknowledge the traditional landowners of this country. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We would particularly like to acknowledge the traditional landowners of the land on which we stand. I am on Wiradjuri land. Tam stands on the land of the Dharawal people and Laurie on the land of the Tarabal people. We express our great gratitude in sharing this land with you. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Oh, this is this is so exciting. I can't believe we actually made the date happen and made the time work. Before she gets in, the, the how I met her, I didn't you, I can't even remember how it happened. Did you email me and say, do you want to do this project with this group of people? Was that, that's just how we met, yeah. is that right? So I was like, this is pissing me off that there isn't any research in this. And I can't, I'm not going to get past an ethics board for longitudinal data to go from like a max lift in a resistance training study of 20 pounds to 200 pounds. And so I emailed Margie Davenport and I was like, I have an idea for you. Like, I just have never met this like world proclaimed uh, researcher. (laughs) Who's been on the podcast already. Yes. Mm -hmm. Been on the podcast and you know her, like now you know her and you're Mm -hmm. just like, oh, she's so approachable and lovely, but I didn't. And now she's like this huge name. And I was like, and so she's like, let's get on a call. And I word vomited this idea. And she's like, well, why don't I help facilitate it for you? And then I got starstruck and like all these ideas came into my head. And that's kind of how the project started. And then she collaborated with Marlies and I reached out to you. And then we did end up getting this like nice breadth of international collaboration with it that gave us a lot of information, a lot of people. So yeah, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So before we get into the cool, hot paper of the moment, um, (laughs) take us back to like your beginning, like where did you go to physio school and what brought you to here? Yeah, so I went to McMaster University for my physio degree and I graduated in 2013. And even when I was in school, I had this idea and I had this love of the clinician scientist role. And I remember I was talking to professors who were in that role and trying to figure out what that would look like for me. And I am actually about to finish up a part-time PhD that's in geriatrics, which is a very different area of practice. And I started that about two years into practice where I was getting older adults that I was strengthening. They were getting an increase in function. I would discharge them. They would decondition. They would come back into my schedule Mm. and I would have this loop that went around. And so I started a PhD that was looking at high intensity resistance training for vulnerable older adults. And part of that study, this is going to get to pelvic health, was that I did a scoping review that was looking at where physical therapists can be involved in primary and secondary prevention. So identifying health across the continuum or looking and screening for risk factors and trying to intervene before uh, chronic disease or other condition has been established. And overwhelmingly, the perinatal space was an area at which Mm -hmm. physical therapists could get involved. And while I was doing that scoping review, my husband and I started a physical therapy gym hybrid model called Stava. So it was an acronym, but was also focused around prevention, where we had this bridge between fitness and rehab. And we first focused on the older adult because that was my area of research. But when I had the results of my scoping review, we also started a program called Strong Like Mom, which was facilitating return to exercise with individuals who are postpartum. And we did that for a couple of years. And then I got pregnant with my daughter, my first child and being in the social media space, the comments were unreal. Um, people were asking me for my pelvic floor biofeedback marker is telling me that I was going to prolapse for lifting. So wait, so you were also lifting, you're a lifter. Oh yes. Yeah. I'm like, what is your background with some barbell something? Oh my gosh. Do something with a barbell. Um, I was a competitive CrossFitter and competed at a regional level in CrossFit in 2013. When we started our business, I moved over and I competed in powerlifting. Then I competed nationally in weightlifting, uh, which is the clean and jerk and the snatch at the Canadian level. Got pregnant with my daughter, did a meet 10 weeks pregnant with her. 
um, lifted all through my pregnancy, postpartum, did a powerlifting meet three months postpartum, did a weightlifting meet five months postpartum, then continued lifting in the peri, like in between pregnancies, got pregnant with my son, have done a couple of CrossFit opens, pregnant, am now returning to uh, CrossFit postpartum with my son. I competed in quarterfinals, not doing very well. I was only four to six months postpartum in that period, but was able to get back to competitive CrossFit. And now um, my husband and I are competing together in like local meets and things like that. So still competing. Um, but and it's something my husband and I have done together for over a decade. So, so I've kind of dabbled is, yeah. every barbell sport. Like I've been in bodybuilding, powerlifting, weightlifting, CrossFit. I've kind of gone across the spectrum and have a love for all of them. So my, my love of the barbell is, is deep and pure and it has been all that. And that's, so that's where all the comments started coming from. Yeah. So I was, oh, I was, okay. yeah. So I was on social media and, and people were asking me about it. And, um, and then I started getting tons of questions and my research brain went into the literature. And one of my committee members is Stu McGill or Stu McGill, Stu Phillips. And he said to me, he's like, if you ever want to do another PhD, the research that we have on resistance training and pregnancy is pretty much non-existent. Mm. And of course that sat with me and it made me like really ponder like why that is. And I think that that thought never left my mind, especially going through two pregnancies myself and lifting. Wow. My wow. God. I know. Wow. So cool. Uh, because I don't read the geriatric space, I feel really bad because we're just talking about one publication that you have. Do you have others in the space of the rest of your PhD? Yeah, so I've published a systematic review on resistance training as a component of our sole intervention for individuals who have mobility disability. And then I have an invited narrative review on uh, pre-frailty that's coming out in topics in geriatric rehabilitation in February. And then I'm putting two of my research studies in for publication over the next couple of weeks, hopefully. So I have yeah. a couple of more coming out of my, my geriatric research, but the, the two things I teach in the continuing education space in geriatrics and in pelvic health, and people always think that these are really different areas. And there is one united theme that both of them have. And that is that they are chronically underdosed mm -hmm. in our language, to both of these cohorts of individuals make them feel like they lack resiliency. And from that perspective, my, if my goal for nothing else in my entire career is to change that even a tiny bit so that the way that we approach rehab is around increasing resiliency and showing the way to the bridge to increase that capacity, then I'll be able to retire happy. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty cool aim. <laughs> we are listening. Yeah. Retirement sounds like a pretty cool aim, guys. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> um, okay, so, it, so this is the first project and the first paper on resistance training and pregnancy and postpartum for you. Um, and so this one for everyone, we'll put a link in the show notes, but it's um, published in IUJ, what, just last month? October. What are we now? Yeah, last month um, called Impact of Heavy Resistance Training on Pregnancy and Postpartum Health Outcomes. And that's our big intro. Welcome. <laughs> what, what did you actually do? What was this paper? Was it it was questionnaire based? Yeah, so we did a cross-sectional survey. So for kind of the, the context for what brought this study to, to light was currently we don't have any evidence on heavy resistance training during pregnancy. And when it comes, especially in the, the pregnant population, if we don't know, the answer is usually no, because we don't want to risk an uninformed, or unresearched decision and then have something negative happen or, or create a liability where the decision that we made has somehow been linked to an adverse fetal or maternal outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And because of that, when we have only resistance training data, that's looking at 20 to 30 pounds, the recommendation from obstetrical providers can be don't lift more than 20 to 30 pounds. 10, 15 now, 20 kilos, kilos. 10 to 15 <laughs> kilos. 10 to 15 <laughs> kilos. Yeah. So that's the limit. I, I, in I can go kilos for you for sure. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Kilos, Kilo. Please. Well, yeah. If you can say both, that would be perfect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So 15 kilos, 33 pounds. And when 
individuals. Now we have so many people who have come into the CrossFit space. They love heavy lifting. They really enjoy heavy resistance training. And when they get pregnant, they want to continue doing that. And they're being told by their obstetrical providers that they, they shouldn't. And in general, blanket statements aren't exactly helpful because a person who's uh, max capacity to lift something off the ground is 25 pounds, then, you know, it may be appropriate that you, they don't want you to lift at hundred percent. But when I'm getting an athlete who's one rep max deadlift is 275 and they're saying, don't lift up 20 pounds. Like that's legitimately less than 10% of my max effort. That is mm-hmm. not something that is by any means strenuous on my body. And even theoretically, you can't under you can't see why lifting that low a percentage of what a person's capacity is could have any adverse a- mm. effect on this or, or mom. And so we really had to start first trying to make a case for, for really pushing into these weights and, and making the case for making heavy resistance training, something that is worth studying. And the idea was let's do a cross-sectional survey to basically show an ethics board to go onto something else that's more longitudinal that you may not have the research for it, but people are doing it anyway. Yeah. It's worth it now if we're we're seeing a growing population of individuals who are lifting heavy during their pregnancy to look at more longitudinal data, give some guideposts for these individuals about what might be the dosage that's appropriate, what might be the signs that you may be going too far. Like we want to know what those, those buoys are so that individuals can feel informed going into their pregnancy around how they can continue to exercise in a way that they enjoy. Very clever. Well done. Well, I think you got your answer. I think everyone's very interested in it. That is for sure. Plus, obviously, you have definitely proven that lots of women out there are doing it. And we're seeing it in the clinics too, which is great. I love how many outcome measures you guys used on health. There was so many. So birth-related ones, prolonged second stage, perineal tearing instruments, Caesar, medical-based ones, so preeclampsia, depression, and pelvic floor related ones. So both pregnant and also postpartum. So stress urinary incontinence. It's amazing array. So you gathered obviously lots of information to be able to get lots of results there. Yeah. And we felt that was really important. And it was kind of nice having Lori and I on there because we were coming from a pelvic health perspective. Mm. Because again, a lot of exercise and pregnancy literature is looking at fetal outcomes, which is mm. super important. Do not get me yeah. wrong. We want to make sure that everything we're doing from a movement perspective is safe for baby. But one of the other things is like, how are we going to set up mom? And we have all of these myths around exercise. We have all of these thoughts around how we can quote unquote, protect the pelvic floor during pregnancy. Mm. And we actually don't know if that is true or if that is needed or warranted. And so we were really trying to look at Yes. Let's take a look at fetal outcomes. Are there any increase in complication rates? Let's talk about the big, like, you know, gestational hypertension, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, perinatal mood disorders, complications during labor and delivery. Let's get a look at pelvic floor dysfunction rates, postpartum, at least subjectively. And then let's also try and see when people got back to lifting, because that's the Mm -hmm. other thing from a postpartum perspective, we really have no idea what is considered optimal or ideal to get back to things like using a weightlifting belt and holding your breath while lifting. And when is a a postpartum body ready for that type of increase in pressure? And so, and at least now we're having a general idea without intervention when individuals self-selected to get back so that we can potentially, if we have clients who are asking in the clinic, when Mm. can I start using a belt? We can say, you know, the only study we have on average said that individuals were getting back to weightlifting belts between five and a half and six months. Some people are going to be sooner. Some people are going to be later, but from data that we have available, that's kind of timelines. And when you set up those expectations, it can just be so wonderful for the athlete to kind of know what their rehab process is going to look like. And um, before we get into the results themselves, how heavy are these women lifting in in the study? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty heavy. So yeah, how we, heavy is that though? <laughs> but see, this is where you go. 
everyone's definition of heavy, I think is really different when you're in the weightlifting world <laughs> may not actually sound very heavy when you're in the pelvic floor world it might sound really heavy. If you don't lift that weight, it sounds really heavy. So yes, Absolutely go. It does. And I love yeah. asking patients and they're like, not heavy. And then I'm like, how many kilos? Just Don't 150 because... kilos. It's yeah, my dad lifts only. Like, oh, wow. Imagine yeah. me lifting that. <laughs> so the inclusion criteria into the study were that people were yeah. lifting prior to and continued to lift over 80% of their one rep max. And then yeah. we asked what the pregnancy numbers were. Out of a total of almost 700 women, their squat was 87 kilos. So about 190 pounds. Bench press was 55 kilos, about 110 pounds. Deadlift was almost 106, so about 235 pounds. Clean was 63 kilos or almost 140 pounds. And their snatch was 47 kilos or almost 100 pounds on average. So Very these were cool. women were lifting heavy. Mm, amazing. I wish I could lift that heavy. I do look <laughs> at people in the gym and I just think, well, maybe I just need to train myself in it, I dare say. I um, think, hold on, before we go into the results too, part of it is, and I think what people should understand is you don't start at 100 kilos right? So it, these, this is something that people have progressively adapted to over a period of time before their pregnancy. Um, and the other thing I think we should mention, and if you can talk about Christina, because I think you'll explain it really well, um, that Tam, I know you were asking to talk about the Valsalva maneuver. Mm, yeah. So what yes, is because that? They're grouped, right? Mm. Um, grouped into women that we're using the Valsalva maneuver, supine exercise is that right too and um yeah yeah and olympic weightlifting but yes the valsalva maneuver for those of our listeners who don't lift um i'd love to understand that a little bit more so the valsalva maneuver has been causing a lot of confusion for a Mm -hmm. lot of years yeah from an electrical perspective when we are performing a valsalva that is when we are closed glottis pushing and assessing for a prolapse. So we are bearing down and we are looking for descent of one or more of the vaginal walls to look for objective signs of prolapse. The confusion becomes when we talk about it in strength and conditioning, this is essentially a closed glottis bracing strategy. So when we look at activation patterns in the core canister, when an individual is participating or or performing a Valsalva, chest wall, internal, external oblique, rectus, and pelvic floor have an activation pattern that is almost similar so that we create this like cinching in of our core canister that increases interabdominal pressure, that increases EMG activation of the spinal erectors and allows for an increase in force transfer, which incurs a performance advantage. So all that to say, there's this misnomer because we teach that you should not be bearing down to perform a bracing Valsalva. And if you are, a lot of individuals will feel symptoms of heaviness or potentially could be leaking. And one of the ways that we intervene for individuals who are leaking under heavy load is to coach the bracing technique to avoid that bear down. Mm. And some strength and conditioning coaches, and I'm not hating on males, but because males don't have as much pelvic floor dysfunction, their cues can be to inhale really big and then bear down into your belly to get that bracing strategy. But for Mm -hmm. females, 50% of them can be leaking under heavy load. And what that really comes down to is that we need to have a coaching switch around how we're teaching a brace so that we don't have that increased risk of, of pelvic floor dysfunction with heavy lifting. And we may be able to prevent a lot of that by one kind of separating the two terms (laughs) and understanding the nuanced differences between the two of them. And then by doing that, we're not going to have this inherent negativity around what a Valsalva is, because when we are lifting over 80% of our one rep max, Mm. you're going to be Valsalvaing because it increases stiffness around the spine and it allows us to do more work. For example, our older adults who can only get up by using their arms of their chair, they Valsalva every single time. That's the only time they can get up. And that's for an activity of daily living because they just don't have the physical function to do it. And so training that pattern is really helpful. And then the last thing is that for individuals who are resistance trained and have experience with the Valsalva, 
they are more efficient and better at increasing inner abdominal pressure than those that are novice lifters. So it is a skill. It's something that gets toned in and their amount of inner abdominal pressure can increase, which translates to more weight lifted in on a bar or in a barbell. May I ask a question? <laughs> yes, Joe, you may ask. You may ask. <laughs> I'm, I'm so into this Valsalva versus bearing down maneuver at the moment because I'm writing a paper on um, pushing during labor. <laughs> so yeah. coming from a different perspective, but so when you say you're coaching them, um, I imagine that you're modifying the technique to send the pressure elsewhere, not down through their pelvis. Yeah. Um, is that right? Are you also yeah. getting them to engage their pelvic floor in case, in the case that it's not happening automatically? Is that right? Yeah. So the cueing that I'll use for a pregnant athlete is to inhale and then hug baby if for a bracing with or without a closed glottis to get that brace, but have it kind of be more spread across the core canister rather than directed down for an individual who's postpartum. I'll tell them to inhale nice and big and then flex their core as if somebody was going to give them to a, a punch in the stomach or else your toddler was going to jump on you. And most of my moms will know that exact feeling, right? When your, your kid's about to jump on you, what do you do? You kind of bring your rib cage over your pelvis, you tighten through your core and, and that allows to spread or distribute load. The interesting thing with respect to birth prep for my pregnant strength trained athletes is that they are very good at closed glottis pushing with a closed pelvic floor hmm. for them, right? We, a lot of pelvic floor PTs will, will advocate for open glottis pushing, even with coaching. What the research show is, is that people end up doing a combination of both. So I think that especially for these resistance trained athletes, we need to teach them how to differentiate those two strategies. So Valsalva for strength training, you're trying to close your sphincters, contract your pelvic floor, close glottis pushing for birth. You have to know how to increase that pressure, but relax your pelvic floor, which is really counterintuitive and opposite to their training. So when I am coaching or treating a barbell athlete, I put the birth prep workouts into their programming where I am working on that relaxation with different amounts of open glottis, closed glottis, and trying to allow them to relax and learn how to lengthen their pelvic floor because they can be fighting themselves during labor if mm. they are having a hard time dissociating those two things. Yeah, nice. And it's really hard to assess without a transperineal ultrasound. It is true. It is true. We, <laughs> but you we can assess it. that. <laughs> we, 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 uh, we'll talk about that later. Um, that's another episode. That's another episode. So what do you think then, Christina, about this sort of advocacy to uh, clarify the terminology a little bit better? So there's people saying, well, can we not just call the bear down maneuver the bear down maneuver, which is with an open glottis and a relaxed pelvic floor and the Valsalva maneuver, a Valsalva maneuver, which is closed glottis and the pelvic floor should contract and lift. Um, and so, because otherwise so incredibly confusing in the obstetric literature, literature or the gynae literature, when we're talking about prolapses and they're assessing on Valsalva and it's always confused us. We're like, what do you mean you're assessing on Valsalva? That's I don't think it'll change in that literature, but Maybe in oh, well. the exercise. <laughs> Maybe I know. Oh, <laughs> do you know how many times I've changed it in all my papers to straining, to bearing down, to the papers just won't even accept it if it's not Valsalva. And oh, really? Yeah. Oh, great. Okay, I'll look forward to mine getting rejected then. <laughs> no, no. You just just write the reviewers and tell them why you're doing it, and hopefully, it just depends on who you have. I've had some people ask about me writing a clinical commentary that really is trying to tease out the Valsalva maneuver from a strength and conditioning side. And, and it's on my, my list of things to do post PhD defense, because I think it is really important that, that we start putting research out there to just differentiate terms and, and try and prevent all of the confusion. Hopefully it's helpful because the latest terminology with Helena Frawley and pelvic floor was bearing down, bearing down, bearing down, bearing down. And so that's what I've changed all of my stuff to. <laughs> bearing down 
and we will see what happens. But it's hard because again, there's the gynae field and obstetric field. There's just, there's so much of that already there. And that's one element of why they're, they don't want to change it is because then when you change it, then how do you compare it to the previous research? Because you're using mm -hmm. different terminologies, but it's very similar to cystocele and anterior vaginal wall descent and bladder mm -hmm. descent. And slowly that changed over time. So, oh boy. <laughs> oh, Siri. No, I didn't ask you anything. Okay. Anyway. Back to those groups. <laughs> so totally makes sense, the Valsalva manoeuvre now. Um, and there was a supine exercise group, which makes sense, of course, because everyone's concerned about exercise um, or exercising whilst supine. And also an Olympic weightlifting group that you have results for. What, what's the differentiation there? Yeah, so these are individuals who participated in the clean and jerk and the okay. snatch. And the issue or the concern that sometimes comes in with Olympic weightlifting is that there is a contact point with the barbell mm. at the thigh and at the hip. And in particular with the snatch, with the contact point being at the hip, there is some concern that that contact could be kind mm. of vaguely or roughly in that contact sport contraindication. And so there are sometimes some concerns about participating in Olympic weightlifting while pregnant. And again, we, we weren't able to see any increase in, in complications for any of these groups, but really as a team, when we were thinking about what questions we were asking, mm. we were looking at any myth, misconception, theoretical mm. thoughts that were, were coming into the pregnant exercise space. And we wanted to see if there was evidence in support of, or we could finally debunk these myths from existing. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was kind of our aim. And so with the Valsalva maneuver, individuals are generally advised, and this is my bias. This is the way I treat it as a pelvic floor PT too, to remove the Valsalva after the first trimester and change to a breath on exertion strategy because with pregnancy, the pelvic floor is already under an increase in strain. So to kind of turn that pressure gauge down during pregnancy, the Olympic weightlifting piece is around, you know, is there any, any risk of complication with that contact point? Really, if you are proficient in weightlifting, it should be a brush up your body, not a bang. Um, mm -hmm. So it shouldn't be a contact, but there's for people who aren't involved in that space there, it, it looks like it hits really aggressively when really it's, it's kind of just a change in speed that happens at those contact points. And then for the supine exercise, it's around that compression of uterus plus fetus on that inferior vena cava and supine hypotensive syndromes. And, and we have dramatic reviews against the supine hypotensive syndrome showing that exercise doesn't increase risk of complications. ACOG has now removed the don't ever sleep on your back recommendation. So we have this growing body of literature, but yet we still see a lot of obstetrical providers who are saying, you know, sleep only on your left side. And, you know, if you wake up on your back, women are really concerned that they're doing something wrong or they'll remove exercises on their back, um, where an individual is going to know very quickly if they're going to be symptomatic when they exercise on their back. Yeah. Okay. I did not know that ACOG removed, um, don't sleep on your back, uh, as a guideline. That recent because I thought they just recently came out with another study with supine in the third trimester and sleeping and they were still advising that you shouldn't be sleeping on your back in third trimester. Really? I the mm. last one that I had was saying that we don't really need to counsel on sleep position. But I could be wrong. I have no idea. But, well, this isn't what I'm looking at every day, so We'll have to. Well, um, do you know what? I might find out and pop it in the show notes because yes. there is some recent data to show that recent. we are concerned. Basically, yeah. the Dopplers um, on the artery into the placenta, they could show that the blood flow is restricted to the fetus <laughs> or to the placenta, let's say, before the woman is symptomatic. So okay. there is, again, some controversy or some concern, I suppose, back in our brains going, hang on a minute, 
hang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're relying on symptoms, maybe maybe that's not quite right either. But so, sleeping is still very different than exercising on your back for short periods. Yeah, of time. I think they found that yeah. exercising counted it. It's kind of protective. That, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Exercise increases blood flow itself. There's like a counterbalance to the blood flow issue to the placenta. Allegedly. That makes sense. But yeah. yeah, none of us are really clear on it, but we all know we've heard Taryn say very recently <laughs> there's some new evidence saying yeah. we've got to be careful. I thought oh, there was yeah. new stuff. Maybe we should find the authors and we should have an episode on that too. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yep, there we go. <laughs> cool figure. You know what's so interesting about the pelvic space is that that research is changing all of the time. And I'm in the research space and I get lost in it. So thank you for keeping me updated. Um, but it, it can be so hard, I think, for clinicians to know what to recommend. Agreed. Um, what else did you find? What were the results from from these groups? Um, oh we see one about cesarean rates, lowering cesarean rates. So that was cool. Yeah. So from an overall health perspective, we saw very low rates of gestational hypertension, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia. Our Amazing. rates of cesarean section were 13% versus 25%, which is at least the U.S. average right now for cesarean section. Um, so, so that was positive that we saw fairly low rates of obstetrical complications. We didn't see any increase um, over general population norms for any adverse fetal outcomes. Um, which was really positive. And that was whether individuals Olympic weightlifted, Valsalved mm-hmm. participated in an exercise on their back or modified those things, but still continued lifting heavy within a different set of parameters. So that was really positive. Um, and then we saw postpartum, a very low incidence of uh, postpartum mood disorder. So rates mm-hmm. of postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression were below uh, population averages. Now it's important for us to be not overstating what we found. And I've already had individuals trying to quote my study and our study and um, change what control people. I know social media. (laughs) Mm, Right. So we found that there was no increased risk of pelvic floor dysfunctions or other um, types of medical complications. We cannot say that these things are protective. Right. We cannot make the conclusion. We can make the assumption, especially for things like gestational diabetes, that resistance training is going to be helpful for the management of these different cardiovascular and um, GD comp, uh, considerations, but we don't have longitudinal data to support that. We just can say right now that resistance training doesn't incur an increase in risk. Right. Somebody was saying, well, Valsalva is protective. Well, no, we don't have it's net neutral. <laughs> where before we were thinking that it was a disadvantage potentially or something that could be potentially harmful. Mm. Now Mm. we cannot say that, but we cannot say it is protective either. We are saying that it is okay to Valsalva and we do not need to freak women out that if they accidentally hold their breath on a squat set, that they are going to spontaneously prolapse their bladder or doom themselves for urinary incontinence postpartum. The myth that we were trying to dispel was the fear-focused messaging around if and when individuals should be modifying exercise and whether or not they should be lifting heavy during pregnancy. What about incontinence afterwards and the rates that we found? What are your thoughts on that? Yes. So we saw uh, 57% of individuals expressed some amount of urinary incontinence postpartum. We didn't have a a sliding scale of when they experienced that and when that went away. So a person could interpret that as any time postpartum, which could be day one or month six. Mm -hmm. But my interpretation of that is that when you have individuals who are returning to heavy lifting postpartum, they're going to be pushing their bodies further when individuals who may not be. And that to me is not something that is negative. It's something that pelvic PTs need to advocate for their role within, because if individuals are returning to sport after an injury, they're going to have instances where they have flare-ups and pain, right? If they had knee surgery and they're coming back to sport, they're probably going to have days when they're training, when their knee is going to hurt a little bit more. 
when individuals have a vaginal birth, they have a massive stretch injury to their pelvic floor. There are probably going to be days when they're returning to high impact or high load exercise where their pelvic floor is going to feel fatigued, or they're going to show signs that they are pushing it to that level. Um, and so I think, you know, it's important for us to interpret that and, and dive into what that looks like. Um, but rates of subjective complaints of heaviness or bulging in the vaginal um, opening were very low. Probably actually, I don't know if you thought this, Lori, but I actually thought that was lower than I was expecting postpartum, um, especially with, you know, sometimes the, the messaging that has been given to a lot of barbell athletes as that being something in particular to be looking out for. Were they not more likely to leak anyway, though, like this population, regardless of being postpartum or not postpartum, they are, they have increased rates of leaking, right? So it's almost what you'd expect, no? Am you I mean physically active women, elite athletes, anyone physically active? Yeah. Because I think when we're talking about it being higher, it was higher than the general population, not yeah, higher right. than other athletes. So. Yeah. It's all, again, we keep seeing this regardless of kind of the activity that people are doing. Those who are more physically active, high intensity running, weightlifting are more likely to leak than those who are sedentary in that moment. But then over time, sedentary is worse for a whole bunch of things. Joe, you look like you mm. want to say something. <laughs> well, I was just going to ask if you asked the question, <laughs> did they leak prior to pregnancy or not? You didn't ask that question in this study That's a, i don't know we didn't report on i think we did but i don't think it's in he, there was so much data yeah i know <laughs> i remember so going so like 64 deep. questions or whatever it was it's insane there was 59 pages of supplementary data and we didn't even get everything that we had put in there into that wow. paper and we had about how to put out a secondary paper with the remainder of the data. Yeah, that's why I'm more than positive that was asked. I just don't think that was in this paper yeah. or went through mm. the stats for this round. I tend yeah. to agree with you on your point though, Christina, like it is what it is um, in terms of the statistic. And I think all it does is just say to us, yeah, there's a problem here in athletes and yeah, we need to try and sort it out. <laughs> yeah. You know, what bugs me so much. So we have this systematic review for adolescent athletes that show on average 48% of adolescent female athletes leak with sport. If that was 48% that had knee pain, Everyone would be losing their marbles. Like, this is not okay. We cannot be accepting this. But yet we have this data now for years. We have syntheses of these data that adolescent athletes, recreational athletes, elite level athletes, perimenopausal athletes, postpartum athletes, like postpartum athletes are all experiencing this problem. And nobody thinks, you know what, we should maybe look at how we are coaching these athletes and how we are educating them about their bodies. Like that, why is that never like the trigger from these studies? I was, this is a coaching and problem. I, yes, it's, it, it is becoming a rehab problem because we are seeing these athletes, but, but shouldn't it be down the line? Like, why is this not being addressed in how we are teaching females how to brace? Like how we are getting them to breathe? Like how we are teaching them about their bodies? Like, it's just unbelievable to me that this is just something that is so well documented. And yet there has not been a single trigger to say, maybe there is something in sport that we should be trying to change. It's just so unbelievable to me. Instead One of, of sending them to us down the line, they're like, oh, there's a problem. Yeah. You need to fix it because it's their pelvic floor. When if it was yeah. that simple, no one would have incontinence. Yeah. And so one of our reviewers, when we were, were doing our revision for the paper was saying, you know, well, you didn't acknowledge that pelvic floor dysfunctions increase with age. I'm like, listen, I said to Margie, I said, how much are you okay with me pushing back against this reviewer? And they were, they were right. Right. Age is a, a known risk factor for pelvic floor dysfunction. Individuals go through pelvic surgeries tend to be postmenopausal, et cetera. But I was like 49% of adolescents leak. So I said, respectfully, this is not an, just an age problem. This is just a female to like to move their bodies at a certain intensity problem. <laughs> and it's really across the lifespan. Yes, we should be looking at postmenopausal athletes and we have no data in them either. Um, I have like eight different PhDs that if anybody is interested, I can help. Well, you should listen to our episode with Jody Daykick because we talk a lot about this exact same um uh, issue we all have that no one ha is yet to figure out why all of these athletes are leaking and we're all sick of the data on prevalence 
we're sick of those papers. We know it exists. <laughs> There's like eight cross-sectional surveys that tell know, me that nuts. cross-sectors think <laughs> with double-unders. And I was like, okay, I, I know this. <laughs> now what? Move on. <laughs> so what is the plan now? Because you, again, you've written this brilliant paper. There's still so much data. Is your plan to... When you're done your thesis, go through some more of the data from this to then put out some other things or start another PhD? Yeah, I'll start another PhD. So I have a couple of ideas. One is that we reported on first births, but we gathered data on individuals who also had more than one child. And we can look at differences between pregnancies. So that's a whole other can of worms from data that we collected. And that's number one. I would love to get a synthesis to kind of see a state of the research on resistance training in pregnancy. We have something around resistance training on cardiovascular functions, but we don't really have anything on fetal outcomes and any pelvic floor outcomes that have been collected. So I think that's another good place to start is figuring out, okay, what's the state of the research. And then I would love to do longitudinal data where we're taking individuals and trying to look at when and how they modify based on, you know, either monthly interviews where we're collecting data that way. Once we have that, then we can start looking at dose response where we can have mm-hmm. individuals in mod versus high intensity groups and, and see if there's any changes in outcomes. Has this because otherwise changed? we don't know, do we? Like, but they just, yeah. when you ask the athletes, they, um, they just say, when I felt, when I felt like I should reduce that, what I did um and even the ones in this study how long did they end up training for do you have the data on that did they go all the way through yeah so some did so the majority I think 85 percent continued to um to lift weights until delivery um and then they talked about when they started to modify so a lot of modifications ended up happening between 28 and 30 weeks pregnant where you know, as you go into third trimester, fetal growth increases, baby belly size starts to make individuals feel uncomfortable and they start making modifications to range of motion, load and, and other ways that they're lifting. Um, but a lot of individuals said that they did, they moved from 80% towards end of pregnancy. They were lifting about 60%. So load decreased over time, mm-hmm. but that is very much a snapshot versus, and it, there's some recall bias, right? Because individuals are trying to remember what they did at different points in their pregnancy. So that's going to be able, that's going to create a little bit of bias and skew our data a little bit, which is just the nature of cross-sectional data. So things that we need to be, be thinking about, um, and, and trying to get a little bit more clarity on with, with more longitudinal data or perspective data. One of the things I just wanted to highlight about this study is that when we looked at urinary incontinence, so 37% of individuals experienced urinary incontinence during their pregnancy, This is at par with what we see in terms of incontinence outcomes in in late term pregnancy, like systematic reviews, I think I saw was 41%. So we were kind of in the same camp there. Like there was no differences, but individuals who became incontinent had lower pre-pregnancy numbers than those that maintain continence, which is really interesting to start thinking about why that might be. So individuals who maintained their continence had higher squat numbers, higher deadlift numbers and higher clean numbers going into pregnancy, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, we think like heavy lifting is linked to high incontinence rates, but it was showing to have less incidence of incontinence during pregnancy for those that were stronger going into pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so what is that? What does that mean? What does that look like? I, I don't know the answer to that. It's just really interesting to start hypothesizing why we might see that to be true. Well, in part, like what you were talking about before with the Valsalva skill that the heavier you lift, the better your skill Mm. is for that performance rather than the heavier you lift, the more your pelvic floor muscles work and the more tension there is and the more tone, because we know that's not what all that matters all the time with incontinence. So just the way that they're moving, the way that they're using the Valsalva and all these Mm. other things, maybe they're just better at it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you assess clinically um, a lot of these athletes' pelvic floor muscle function? Yep. What are they like? I'm not currently training right now because I'm finishing up my, my PhD, but we'll do supine and standing assessment. So looking at 
pelvic floor contraction. They're, they're bearing down. Yep. Sorry. I'm just showing her my fingers. Yep. 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 With palpation. Does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then we'll, we'll ask them to show how they would brace in standing and, and in the bottom of a squat and visually see if, if they're, you know, does their brace look more like a bear down or does it look more like a Kegel? And we can see if individuals are leaking at the bottom of their squat. And when we ask them to brace, they start bearing down that they, it may be a reason why they're experiencing incontinence under heavy loads. And so Mm -hmm. it's a great way for us to get some insight and doing that in standing is just unbelievably helpful um, Mm -hmm. to get more specificity because a lot of individuals can have athletic incontinence where their day-to-day cough, sneeze, like they don't have any issues with that. It's when they're sumo deadlifting over 80% of their one rep max is when they start leaking. And so getting at least a standing assessment can give us a lot of information. Are the pelvic floors generally super strong? Well, we, so it's interesting because the data that we have in athletes is that I wouldn't there, we have hypertrophy data to show that individuals who are more mm-hmm. active have more hypertrophy of their pelvic floor muscles. Does that is that clinically meaningful? I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. Okay. I just thought you might yeah. have like a gut feel from all your clinical experience with assessing um, lots of lifters. I think that our lifters have a very good co-contraction strategy where they may not be better than other people at isolating the Kegel, but they are very good at turning everything on. So you get them to do right. a squat and a brace and they are contracting their pelvic floor, their adductors are kicking on, their core is kicking on, their butt is kicking on. And that's not something for them that's bad because when you're doing a heavy deadlift, you don't need to isolate your pelvic floor. You need everything to be as rigid as possible. And so from that perspective, they may not be as good at isolating that without training, but also they can be very trainable to be able to work into that motor reprogramming. So what are the uh, implications from this study? One, we do not need to make people fearful of Valsalva. That's number one. We now have two Valsalva in pregnancy studies that is looking at uh, fetal and maternal blood flow. And now our study is, is kind of corroborating those, um, those findings that we don't see an increased risk to baby mom, or really our pelvic floor as of right now, and using the Valsalva. Individuals can exercise on their back. Individuals can continue to lift heavily and we don't see any increase in risk. And those that continued lifting up until delivery actually had a decreased risk for, for other complications. So again, we don't have prospective data. We can't say it's necessarily protective, but it gives us good insights that one, the fear spiral can stop. We can start dispelling some of these myths around the the work around Valsalva and, and the amount of heavy strength training that individuals can participate in. And then it gives us good justification for, for going to next steps and trying to find more longitudinal data and getting a better idea about when, how individuals modify to give clinicians more, more guideposts, um, to be able to help come alongside these athletes so that they can feel supported and still empowered to move their body in a way that they want to move their body during mm. pregnancy. And so again, remembering the women in this study were doing this before their pregnancy. Absolutely. So <laughs> yeah. when we talk about Valsalva, doesn't mean you then have a pregnant person who's never lifted before and you decide to introduce that. Like yeah. That, that is a, a different story. Let's call it a skilled Valsalva, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to figure out the nomenclature for sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, I just want to say thank you because I'm definitely guilty of modifying or, you know, making suggestions to athletes around lifting in pregnancy and postpartum and, you know, erring on the side of caution for sure. So um, because, you know, I, I guess not being a lifter, it just that just made sense. So it was kind of easy to accept sort of like, yeah, for sure. Oh my goodness. You can't be putting that much load down through. Oh, da, 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 da. Um, but so thank you for debunking those myths and for sure our clinical practice shall change. <laughs> it debunked my own myth. I talked a lot about breathing out on exertion too during pregnancy. And I 
would probably put myself on the more aggressive side of the spectrum. And so it's interesting when your own data challenges your own beliefs, <laughs> not that for being increased risk of pelvic floor dysfunction, but it made me think about the way that I was communicating how we were going to modify. And so mm. it, it's cool to be reflective of your, your own work and then see how that can potentially change practice. And the the amount of attention that this study has gotten has been unbelievably overwhelming. I don't know if Lori, if you've been getting all of these tags, but it is very cool to see the, the attention and, and the desire that people have for more of this research coming out. Amazing well work, ladies. I'm sure everyone is going to read it. Very exciting. Look, thank you. And so since you said you have social media, we'll put the links of where people can contact you. But understanding, when are you finished? You're like, when are you defending? Uh, hopefully beginning of January. Oh, okay. I was going to say, so 2024. So no, you are, that's, yeah. So my thesis is written, Lori. It is written. I am in edits now. Like I okay. can see the end. I have done a PhD with two pregnancies, two births, a business that's gone through COVID. Like, I feel like I am going to be a rock star by the end of this PhD because <laughs> I did it on a part-time basis and my life has changed a lot from the beginning to the end. And so I just, I just can't wait to defend. I just bring it on. <laughs> good. Good, well, good luck. I think you're going to do absolutely amazing. So where, what are you, yeah, where are we going to find you afterwards? Other than doing more research, you then have the Barbell Mamas, which I really think we just should quickly mention because I have not looked at it yet, but it looks amazing. So just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I work, I have two companies that I work for and have created. So the Barbell Mamas is a programming platform that I created that provides programming for pregnant CrossFit weightlifting and powerlifting, and then postpartum return to CrossFit weightlifting and powerlifting. And so in that programming, it's $29 a month. And we have filters for different pelvic floor issues for how we be, would be modifying or changing an exercise program to try and take cool. the guesswork out of it. So for pregnancy, we have early versus late uh, pregnancy modifications. Then we have filters for leaking and pelvic pain. Postpartum, we have early postpartum filters, diastasis recti, C-section, leaking, prolapse, and pelvic pain. So we have kind of our base like workout for the day. And then if you are experiencing diastasis recti, it's like, okay, for this, do this. For this exercise, modify this way. Or if you're experiencing this pain, change it to this variation so that individuals were, were the goal is to try and remove barriers to returning to exercise for individuals who may not have access to uh, pelvic floor therapists who can help them with that transition. And then I teach a course on pregnant and postpartum CrossFit mm -hmm. that goes from teaching the internal exam to exercise modifications for pregnancy and postpartum with respect to barbell lifting, gymnastics, and uh, endurance. And I, I run that through the Institute of Clinical Excellence. So we have an eight week online course. And then I just finished a two day live course. And so it's very cool to be able to take here's the internal exam. You're getting all of this information. Now get these mamas off their backs. Let's get them in standing and use that information to help give them recommendations for their exercise programs so that they can have pelvic support in the way that they're living their life, which is in standing. That is amazing. Amazing. Oh my God. Okay. Well, we, we, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. I love everything you're doing and, you know, fingers crossed, we still will do some more work together in the future. Sounds great. Have a great day, ladies. See you later. Thank you All for right. having me. See ya. Bye, Christina.